1: Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Thinking Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, and I have an all-time favorite guest joining me today, a, a good friend of mine, someone that I've actually played a lot of poker with, talked even more poker with, and someone that actually probably needs no introduction at this point. Uh, he's one of our TPE coaches and a friend of the podcast, Andrew Brokus. Welcome back, Andrew. How are you?
0: I'm I'm excellent, and I want to say, I I don't want to tell you how to run your show, so this is ultimately your decision. (laughs) I'm in favor of keeping this in, but you just welcomed everyone to the Thinking Poker podcast. Uh, (laughs) uh,
1: I think that we should keep it in because I am having an an identity crisis. Which one of us is Andrew and which one of us is Clayton? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm glad you uh, pointed out my mistake there. Obviously, this is the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. Hopefully, I don't get fired over that mistake, but I think people (laughs) will understand that I have the uh, host of the Thinking Poker podcast here with me, and I wanted to talk to you about the podcast. So right before we hit record, we were talking about the Thinking Poker podcast, and (laughs) I had it in my brain. So (laughs) Uh, if that's the biggest mistake I make this week, uh, it'll be a good week so (laughs) i've already told
0: i've told my lawyers to let this one slide (laughs) okay cool
1: not gonna sue me for stealing your copyright or something all right so this is the tpe podcast but i want to talk about the thinking poker podcast which is your podcast which is uh wildly popular and it's at thinkingpoker.net and uh you have just put out episode 285 how many podcasts do you think actually make it to two hundred and eighty-five episodes?
0: Uh, not a lot, and especially not ones that are an hour long. You know, I think there are some people who are doing shows where they just like you know they do ten-minute shows and put one out every day or something, so they're kind of getting uh, six to ten shows out of what would be one show's worth of content. Uh, right. Uh, I mean, I think really the biggest thing is like how many make it to ten.
1: Yeah. Well, I read somewhere that the average podcast makes it to two.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think friends get together. They're like, oh, this is fun hanging out talking. We should do a podcast. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And then uh, after a couple of weeks, they realize it's not that fun for them. And uh, it's hard to get together. People are busy. Uh, whatever the reason, most of them last one or two episodes. And so how did you and your uh, co-host nate mavis
0: avoid that very common pitfall well this is actually some people probably know this but um there there was a thinking poker podcast that never actually aired um i recorded two episodes uh, so actually there's there's your magic number too i recorded two interviews <laughs> um one of whom was with one of which was with nate mavis so this was a solo project um that uh and and it may even been nate who encouraged me to do this uh by myself first um but i i recorded one interview with nate i recorded one with gareth chandler who does not play a lot of poker these days but at one time was one of our more regular guests on the thinking poker podcast Uh, so i recorded these two interviews and i wanted to get a couple in the in the bag before i aired like i guess i wanted to spare myself the embarrassment of just doing like two episodes and then deciding it wasn't going to work and never doing it you know, just like letting it disappear. So instead I just decided I was going to record a few before I started, you know, releasing any of them. And after doing the two, I wasn't real happy with how either of them went and I just kind of lost the momentum on it and never did any more for a while. And then eventually Nate was like, well, look, if you're not going to do this thing by yourself, maybe we can do it together. And I think that the co-host really was the key to... The longevity, like the, with each of us feeling some kind of obligation. I don't want to speak too much for him, but certainly on my sake, like feeling an obligation towards him was greater than feeling an obligation towards myself or to some abstract idea of an audience, which didn't really exist in the beginning. You know, you have to build that audience. So it, it was a lot easier to keep the commitment when I felt like it was going to be. Um, letting him down in some way if if, you know when there were times when i was like ah maybe this isn't worth doing uh, that was a a big help in keeping it going
1: yeah Uh, how did you build your audience because for me the key is give the wrong name of the show during the intro (laughs) that's that's strong advice (laughs) how did you guys go about building your audience because of course episode one had probably
0: very few listeners that weren't your
1: immediate circle of close friends
0: the one thing that I did have going for me, I, I had the Thinking Poker blog. That it, I mean, and now the Thinking Poker blog is mostly mostly just a distribution vector for the Thinking Poker podcast. But at the time, it was like an actual blog, and I had a fair number of readers for that. I, I'm not even sure I could ballpark a number, but you know, enough that like there were some people who were going to listen to the first podcast that I did. And I was already on Twitter and had some followers there and things. So I definitely had some people who were kind of invested in like the Thinking Poker. I hate this brand or like <laughs> the Andrew Brooks yes, brand. The brand. Uh, like th- there were people who were going to trust. Like, if I put out a podcast, they would listen. They would give it a listen. You know, they, see, they I mean, it exactly would have to be good. Like, they're not going to just listen to a thousand bad podcasts. But, like, if I'm putting out a decent product, like, there's people who are going to give it a chance. Those, those people already existed and I had some access to them. I um, see. Because um, so that, that was pretty helpful. You.
1: Yeah, I, w- I thought that the uh, podcast
0: predated the blog. So, silly me. There you go. Uh, no, that blog actually, it was um, it was syndicated on Card Player for a while, which was kind of funny because I don't think I really hit the Card Player aesthetic, and like it was me next to, I mean, there were some other like no name people who were on there besides me, but I mean, I think like Doyle Brunson had a blog on there. Not that these people ever updated their blogs, but like technically they had blogs on there. I think Daniel Negreanu was like like some of the most famous poker players in the world, and then like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty and, cool. And in, in some ways, it was. I mean, it was it was definitely good, like exposure wise. The thing was, my the, the tone of my blog was very different from, like, Doug Brunson's right. or whatever. And mine was much more kind of strategy oriented. And a lot of it focused on non intuitive strategies. Like, I wasn't posting kind of like bread and butter, like, oh, here's a spot where I four bet with pocket aces. How interesting. You know, I was posting spots where I did weird stuff. And then I was making arguments for why, like, even though it seemed bad, it was probably good. And on thinkingpoker.net, that was well received and like my audience kind of got that and trusted me and it was you know, a thinking poker audience, the audience on card player was like, hey, who the hell is this guy telling me that I should be like, Oh yeah. More skeptical. Yeah. For, like You know, they're just like, who is this like preachy asshole? <laughs> right, right. So it was just like night and day, the comments that I got on card player versus the comments that I got on, on thinking poker.net. And for a while I didn't realize that there were comments on card player. And then like, once I found them, I was like, Oh, I wish I'd never found these. <laughs> <laughs> they were pretty rough. One of
2: the
1: first um, good chunks of exposure I ever got was uh, one of my videos ended up appear- a comedy videos that is ended up appearing on uh, collegehumor.com and uh, my friend at the time I'll never forget the advice that she gave me because I took it she said uh, Jamie Lee is her name she's actually the, one of the co-stars on Crashing on HBO now of course then she was an up and coming uh, comedian that I used to write with a lot. And Jamie Lee said, all right, that's really cool that you got on collegehumor.com, Clayton, but whatever you do, do not read the comments. (laughs) (laughs) So what I did instead was I read the comments on her video on collegehumor.com because she was someone that I thought was so hilarious and, you know, just there's no way they wouldn't love her. And when I read her comments I was like, well if they feel this way about Jamie Lee, I'm never going to read my comments.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to Did this day I understand that misogyny was a thing or <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, I didn't realize that how how closely related misogyny and the college humor brand right. were uh. at the time. <laughs> so yeah, reading that I just said, you know, uh maybe uh I don't at the time I didn't think that my skin was thick enough now this was years ago and i've been lambasted on every possible platform now so i can handle you've um... never been lambasted on the thinking bunker podcast. <laughs> well maybe maybe it's it's time <laughs> maybe it's time <laughs> i <laughs> yeah so uh, at this point i think i can handle reading those comments but it's unlikely that video is still up because i'm talking you know 12 years ago now so um but yeah Definitely uh, can be soul crushing when you think you've done good work and then you read comments because people are very, very brave when they write comments, <laughs> <laughs> especially when they don't have to give their true identities or home addresses.
0: Um, well, but, know, the other thing for me, I, I I think, you know, this. you know, I, I have a pretty serious background in competitive debate you know, in high school and in college. That was a lot of what I did. And so to like to drop an argument in a competitive debate is essentially to treat it as true so like if your opponent says something even if it's sort of like patently wrong it's not the judge's place it's not to step in and like that's a wrong argument like you're supposed to you have to explain why it's wrong or else the judge is supposed to treat it as true not like interject her own opinion of whether or not it's a good argument so there's this very strong like I have this this strong and and I've had to kind of beat this out of myself of like not dropping arguments ever (laughs) you know it's like things have to be responded to but in a competitive debate room there's time limits that sort of prevent your opponents from just like making a bunch of stupid arguments for the sake of wasting your time and that's exactly the opposite of what the internet is
1: absolutely and so how did you uh get that desire to argue with everybody until until the end of time out of your system
0: i mean i think you just have to recognize the the futility of it and (laughs) like have a, I mean, I, I, I mean, I still have this problem on, on Twitter from, from time to time, and I'm still developing strategies for, for dealing with it. But as much as possible, I try to have a very clear objective if I'm getting involved in an argument online. Definitely. If it's an argument with someone that I don't know well, even with people that I know well, I think you're usually better off having those disagreements in person or at least by email where you can sort of like write your thoughts out more thoroughly so if I do get involved, so like one thing that I'll do is sometimes like Daniel Negreanu will post some stuff that I disagree with. And my objective when I respond to those is not really to change Daniel's mind. I mean, it'd be great if I did, but like he doesn't, I'm, I'm actually surprised how often he does engage with it, to be honest, to his credit. Like obviously he's a, you know, has probably, I think he's like 2 million followers or something crazy. Um, so that, you know, that to ha- that he's responding at all actually is, is to his credit. But, um, My objective is not to change Daniel's mind. And I think in general, if you're arguing with someone on the Internet, your objective should not be to change that person's mind. It's just not that's not what changes people's minds. It's not the environment in which people's minds change. If I'm responding to something that Daniel Nakanyu said, it's because he has two million followers and because I want at least some of those followers to see the other side of that issue. So what I'm really trying to do is... Just make them aware of what is the argument on the other side and that there is an argument on the other side. Because I think he, and there's other people who do this too. He's just sort of the most high profile one. I think he has a tendency to post a lot of stuff that sort of makes sense unless you think about it or like <laughs> makes sense if you don't. If you haven't heard the argument on the other side, um, and I think a lot of people just these kind of I mean, common sense is the term that people tend to use for like, I I have a sort of negative view of what a lot of people call common sense. I think it tends to be more like common bigotry or something. Yes. Sense isn't actually all that common. (laughs) Yeah. And I just like what people want to call common sense is really stuff that they want to be true, but they can't really justify. So, uh, like, common sense is kind of a way of saying like, oh, I, I don't have to justify this. Anyone who says it's wrong is just like sophistry. Um, Give me an example of that. I- I'm not sure. If- okay, this is one that I think is. Um, it's it's probably not going to resonate with everybody, but you know, public education is is an issue that I'm um, I have been more into it sometimes in my life than I am now, but it's it's an issue that's important to me. And you probably know this, but like school choice is a big topic in the United States right now. And a big part of like education reform is should we have charter schools? Should we have vouchers? Should we give people more control? And this is related to ideas about privatizing education. So a lot of these schools are like not strictly public schools. And I think there's a lot of people who are not, they're not traditional public schools anyway. I think there's a lot of people for whom like the term common sense is like, well, if you if if you create more choice, so you give uh, parents the ability to choose which school their students are going to go to, then like the schools are going to be better. That's just common sense, and and so it's not entirely wrong, but there's a lot of stuff that when you think like the the details of how that gets. Implemented, like if you think about what are the actual incentives of a for-profit school, or in particular of a private charter school that's operating as kind of a test case right now, which is what many of them are, is there 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 specific charter schools that exist for the purpose of being laboratories of you know kind of what would happen if we gave private groups, uh, often for-profit groups, the opportunity to run schools with a lot fewer of the The negative term would be red tape or the the kind of stuff that that gets imposed on on traditional public schools. You know, would they produce better test results and all this other stuff? So these schools kind of exist as laboratories and they're meant to be able to compare to traditional public schools and see, okay, are they doing things that work? And again, that sounds like common sense. Like that just sounds like straightforwardly a good idea. The problem is that those schools have a lot of incentive to cherry pick which students they admit into the school. And They so the, the question then becomes like in a world where that's the the model for public education what happens to the students who are very difficult or expensive to teach like no for-profit school wants to take them and they drag down the test scores of these laboratory schools and so a lot of these schools actually end up putting a lot of effort into um, only accepting students who are going to generate good test scores and like not letting students who are going to generate bad test scores take the tests and, and there's all these other th- kind of things that happen because of what their incentives actually are and that's the kind of thing that i think tends to get dismissed like when you try to make those more nuanced arguments people are like oh but choice is just better it's common sense
1: okay well yeah that is a great example of somebody just kind of brushing off the other side of the argument by saying it's common sense uh our charter schools good or bad um is probably a question that we are not supposed to be answering on the tournament <laughs> <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but I see what you mean about how people will just uh, say that's common sense. And, you know, I don't know what what it is about Daniel Negreanu that every time he tweets, he seems to be – he's putting something out there that he assumes everyone's going to agree with. And then, you know, he has a mail call moment where he's – oh I. Yeah, I didn't mean it like
0: that. I rewrote it now. I, I tried to fix it. Yeah, I don't even know that he assumed. I mean, sometimes I wonder if it's not a deliberate strategy. I mean, obviously, you get more engagement on a tweet. Like, I, I don't know that he's this uh, mercenary about it. But, you know, posting controversial things is a better way of getting people to en- engage with your Twitter than just posting sort of anodyne um you know I'm I have two thousand chips going into level twelve of this tournament. Here we go, go go. you know, like that's not people don't engage with that in the same way that if you're posting like controversial opinions and asking people to uh, agree or disagree with them, you're gonna get a lot more engagement.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's him. Um, he's uh, <laughs> he's an interesting fellow. I met him at the PCA this summer uh, this summer. It felt like summer. it was last month. Um, it was, uh, you know, after the comedy show. And, you know, he's like, oh, I'm going to follow you on Twitter. What's your Twitter? And he had me blocked. <laughs> so he looked at my Twitter, and the other two of us were laughing, like, what did I ever do to you? He's like, I don't know. Did you ever say more rake is better? Because everybody who says that just gets an immediate block. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, I might have made a joke about that or something, but uh if you want to unblock me, I'll promise never to say that again. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, you know, had this moment um he's in, engaged to amanda leatherman who's someone that i have met before and I, w- I was familiar with um years ago so uh i think like for the sake of all of that and just for feeling love after a comedy show he, he unblocked me so i yeah. guess i'm i'm the few the proud the unblocked <laughs> yeah,
2: <that's laughs> so, a good story
1: it's kind of a new lease on life and i owe it all to comedy um Actually, uh, mentioning Daniel kind of gets me to another uh, question I had for you, um, because I know that your background, at least poker-wise, is in. Uh, I think you started out online, mm-hmm. and then moved to live. And I mean, if you're like me, you remember kind of the good old days of Poker Stars. What do you think, kind of generally, with
0: what's been going on with Poker Stars lately? You know, truthfully, I haven't followed it that closely because I don't play much on there anymore. Um I played WCOOP and nothing else last year, and I'm probably not even going to play that this year, um, which is part... I mean, all these things are kind of interrelated. Like, I mean, mostly the games are just quite tough these days <laughs> like yeah i i mean and you know traveling going to canada to play has some expenses associated with it as well the i mean the only reason i played w Coop last year is i have a friend who lives in montreal who, his roommate had just moved out and so he had like a free room and he invited me to just come stay for free oh that's um, cool yeah yeah you know i mean it is it's fun like i still kind of enjoy it it's nice to just be able to like sit around in your pajamas and you know play online poker but i mean those games are
1: Real tough. I swear I've seen people wearing pajamas at the World Series. Oh, for I'm sure. Too. Yeah. But it's still not as comfortable
0: as. <laughs> yeah, obviously.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So well, I, I guess you were you, doing one of your bits there.
1: No, yeah. That was a, <laughs> that was a skit. I think that would qualify as a <laughs> skit more than a bit. Um, I think uh, a lot of the high stakes players decided not to play uh, last Sunday.
0: Yeah, we actually un- unrelated to that, we just had uh Giraffe Ganger on the show, um, who was the sort of the, the coordinator of that uh boycott or protest or whatever you want to call it. But um honestly that wasn't even related to uh to why we had him on. He's just an interesting dude. But yeah, that's uh I do think yeah. that's interesting. Isn't he like the top
1: crusher online right now or one of them? He's he's, like, he's right up
0: there, yeah, top
1: yeah. top ten. I know that name for
0: sure. Oh, but you guys didn't get it? Because, yeah, I don't want to repeat content. Well, no, again. I mean, we we talked a little about Poker Stars. We did not talk about that boycott specifically. Okay.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, years ago when Black Friday happened, and then everybody said, nobody play it Venetian because. Yeah. Sheldon is against, uh, <laughs> and then people were like, "Oh, all the good players are not going to go to Venetian, so maybe I should go play a Venetian." <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, because the the guy that owns a Venetian, Sheldon Adelson, Adelson, not sure how you pronounce his name, but he's uh, very much against online poker and was one of the driving forces behind Black Friday. I guess my question is, do you think that players will ever really be able to get it together, and make a difference? Uh, given
0: that we are all a bunch of renegade uh, lone wolves. Yeah, I mean, I I do think the lone wolf thing is the issue. Uh, I mean, I don't know a lot about the history of, like, organized labor, but, (laughs) I mean, it was organized for a reason. (laughs) And and it was a lot of work to, to maintain it, which is why it has sort of backslid um i mean it's a big collective action problem to maintain like a a boycott of that scale and like it definitely is like there's a lot of incentive to i mean i guess it'd be kind of the equivalent of like crossing the uh, picket line Like, i mean there's a lot of incentive for as you said if if a bunch of good players are not going to play then you know for people to, to kind of play and especially with online i mean you don't even know for sure uh, someone might be claiming that they're participating in the protest, and they're actually playing in that tournament on their buddy's account or on some second account or something. I mean, the anonymity of it makes it difficult, also. Um, but so the short answer is, is no. Uh, I could imagine some kind of like players' union being created, but I still don't think it would do that. Like the the kind of thing I could imagine it doing is if there were more problems similar to what was happening pre black friday with like ultimate bed and full tail poker and some of these sites the rock uh, lock poker is another good example like some of these sites have operated in, in really downright shady ways and there's i mean i have no idea they nominally have like regulators located in gibraltar or wherever um i really have no idea what those people are doing or what their incentives are i doubt that their incentives are really to regulate all that strictly like these These companies that they're regulating are also their biggest customers, um, much far more so than like you or I or someone who might be playing on those sites are. So, I mean, I can imagine something where there's sort of like a player's union that says, here are the things that we expect from an online poker site we want to see this kind of transparency we want to know that your random number generator is this and this and this we want to know that you have these security protocols in place i don't even know what those would need to be but you know presumably you could have like a council of players who put those together and say like if you want the poker players union stamp of approval you have to meet these things and maybe you could get to the point where like having that stamp of approval really was worth a lot of money and like a lot of people wouldn't feel comfortable playing on a site that didn't have that stamp of approval that's the closest I can think of to how I mean I, I don't think we're ever gonna sort of maintain a long-term boycott the the community of people who are playing specifically that 5k tournament on stars is pretty small and they do mostly know each other and it is a very reputation-based community um, and a lot of them are probably back by the same people. So there might be a little bit more of like in a community that small and tight knit, it might be a little more feasible to hold something like that together. But no, a math boycott of the nation is, is never going to work.
1: Right. Or the Sunday million. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I do think it's honorable that they want to do something, but I think it's unfortunate that uh, PokerStars seems to uh, maybe they have a long term strategy that I'm not seeing, but it doesn't seem to be emphasizing um public relations
0: well and specifically it's not emphasizing professional relations i mean i actually think that like the the more rake is better thing that you mentioned earlier with with has become (laughs) such a meme and it's an easy thing to make fun of it's a terrible soundbite but in terms of like the argument that he's actually making i don't think it's that unreasonable um there's i mean i think professional poker players a little bit have there are heads up our own asses a little (laughs) in terms of like there's not a lot of reason poker stars needs to cater to professionals i mean to some degree professionals are going to go where the games are soft even if it means like higher rake and less good game conditions like there's there's going to be an equilibrium i mean not everyone is going to be able to hack it there and like the most marginal professionals are going to um drop out and not participate anymore. No, I said I'm not playing Wcube next year. <laughs> right, right. But but I mean a fair number like there's if enough fish are there even if the rake is high it's going to be worth it for the better professionals to to play there and I mean I there are people who study this kind of thing more than I have but I think there's a lot of legitimate reasons why they felt like having the kind of mass multi-tabling professional players that were really overrunning that site for a while was not good for i mean there's some questions as to how oriented they are short-term versus long-term and that is a a topic that we get into with with draft ganger but um yeah i mean i i don't think it's necessarily like a bad business decision for them to be discouraging professionals and making the game more appealing to like gambling players i think some of these people have this idea that Poker is supposed to be beatable, or that it's supposed to be like you're somehow like entitled to make a living from it, or something. And that's definitely not true. Like PokerStars does not give a shit whether you make a living. Um, that's not their job to give a shit. And you kind of like they're they're pursuing their own interest. And like to some degree, they need some professionals for like liquidity reasons. But if they can get a big enough player pool and they have a lot of people who are willing to just like gamble with each other, um, I don't know that they care that much about having professional players there and if they have a lot of players who aren't rake sensitive or willing to pay higher rake in order to have a certain kind of game experience that doesn't seem intrinsically wrong to me i'm not saying that that is or isn't the case like they might just be making a bunch of bad or at least short-sighted business decisions i just don't think it's like on the face of it ridiculous
1: well we'll have to check out that uh interview you did with giraffe ganger to get uh his perspective on that on that part of it as well um I just want to apologize uh, to any listeners who might be hearing a cat. My cat, Bert, is uh, definitely trying to make his podcast debut tonight. <laughs> he's in the next room, but he's he's definitely trying to get my attention. For um, what no, it's worth, I'm not hearing Bert. Oh, okay. I, I don't know if, if this microphone is picking Bert up or not, but it's like all I can hear. I'm trying to concentrate on what you're saying, and there's this noisy meow in my ears. <laughs> it's in the next room, but uh, don't worry, Bert. I'll get to you later. Um, all right so you were you made some good points about rake um and yeah as you mentioned the sound bite with daniel and of course doug polk had a great time a field day if you will with that particular quote even built a billboard <laughs> more rake is better yeah, dot com. which is which is hilarious i mean yeah
0: I even though i think it's kind of an unfair argument like i do think that's a very funny thing to do
1: <laughs> you know i i enjoy doug polk i don't care what other people think of him i enjoy him immensely anyway um when you set out to, you know say for example like we've been talking a lot on this podcast about the uh world series of poker schedule that's been sort of released uh piecemeal over the last few weeks like oh it gonna be the 10ks are gonna be on these days and these are some of the new things we're doing they've been trying to build i think excitement by kind of giving it to us like almost like WikiLeaks or something like what did you hear about this that's gonna happen you know
0: yeah now, they're like now, guaranteed headlines every time they release something then they might as well get eight headlines out of it instead of one.
1: Yeah, it's a good maneuver on their part, I think. But when you set out to plan your schedule for the summer, especially given how things have changed over the years, it used to be really the only game in town was the World Series of Poker. Um, Then Venetian kind of got on board with their deep stack extravaganza, which I always thought was a hilarious name. I think they dropped the extravaganza part for the most part nowadays.
0: They still call it the DSE, don't they? I they, think they do, but then the
1: signs just say deep stack series. Or oh, something. Okay. Yeah. They, they don't want to remind us what the E stands for. Cause it's just the wrong word. I don't know what the <laughs> right word is, but extravaganza <laughs> is not it. That's like a youth car like, event, like on, you know, president's day weekend. or. uh, how do you decide which tournaments you play and and what what weight do you put on
0: how much the rake is as a percentage of the outlay? I think they're all relatively close on the rake. so I mean it, it certainly would influence my decision if there were places where it were vastly different. you know if, if there were some places where you're playing uh, 900 plus 100 and other places where it's 800 plus 200. Um, but I don't think there's that kind of disparity, at least not the stuff that I'm really looking at. Um, so you don't play at Planet Hollywood, I guess. Uh, I've never played at Planet Hollywood. Okay, yeah, their rate is really it's much higher than the other places. The main reason I haven't played there, honestly, is um, Carla s- tells these horror stories about how loud the music <laughs> is there, and like I just I, I've never really talked to anyone who felt like they had a positive experience at planet Hollywood, everything I've heard. I actually, I mentioned wanting to play it this most recent summer. Uh, I mentioned in advance of the summer that I wanted to, you know, branch out a little bit and go to some more, like I mostly played at Rio the summer before. And, um, I had really good experiences at Wynn and Venetian and, uh, I'd never even went to Planet Hollywood, even though I was on the list of like places I was interested in going, because I got several people commenting like, in general, that's a good plan, but just scratch Planet Hollywood off your list.
1: Yeah, they're not they're not keeping up. You know, the Rio, like you walk in, it smells like cigarettes, you gotta walk down this long hallway past all these, you know, people in fanny packs. It's just it's not the scene. It's I don't know, it's just not the scene. Nothing against fanny packs. The wind is
0: is such a nice such a nice player
1: experience. Yeah. It's just great. The chairs are comfortable. Like there's all that kind of stuff. So yeah, how much of that how much weight do you put even on that? Like, you know, I don't wanna play someplace that's smelly or I have an uncomfortable seat. I I don't
0: directly put a lot of weight on that, but I do think it influences where the recreational players that I want to play with are going to be also. You know, like ultimately you want to be in an environment – like for me, I want to be playing where a lot of recreational players are. And so I'm going to follow the things, ultimately, that are kind of, like, important to them. Um, the WSOP is one of those things. Like, that's a really powerful brand. And I think for a lot of poker enthusiasts, like, playing in WSOP tournaments is kind of its own magical thing. I don't personally feel that way. I mean, winning a bracelet would be nice, but I know, like, there's some professional poker players for whom that's really, like, a life goal. It's like, I got to get one of those bracelets. I, I don't feel that way. I mean, it would be neat, but I am i don't put much stuff um, Stock in like that's not like a, a key life goal of mine to win a bracelet. Um, but I I mean I think the WSOP gets some just because they have such a powerful brand and they can draw way bigger fields in other places and for a lot of recreational players that's a big deal it's just like how big is first prize or how big is the field going to be so I mean they have that natural advantage going for them which is I think part of why they're not trying to compete on that other stuff and they just can't I mean they're not going to be able to put on a a, a tournament with 2,000 players and provide the kind of experience that the the win does Um, or certainly not like 6,000 players and provide the kind of experience that that the wind does. Sure. Yeah. Obviously, smaller, it's friendlier. Just, you know,
1: it's very natural for that to be the case. Yeah, but you're right, though. Like, you know, Billy Bob Jackson from Waco, Texas, doesn't want to go home and tell people I won a, G- a Goliath series <laughs> at the playing at <laughs> in Hollywood. He wants to be able to say I played in the World Series of Poker and check out my shiny new gold bracelet. It know. depends. I mean, but I do think
0: like I think there's a lot of recreational players for whom like the you know, being in a comfortable chair or, like, being able to stare at women in bikinis going into the pool club at Wynn or just, like, there's stuff like that that, like, also attracts different kinds of recreational players. So I just, I guess I I only meant to say like WSOP has one advantage in that regard, but I think in a lot of other ways, like better food, more comfortable chairs, that kind of stuff, um, there are recreational players to whom that appeals. But ultimately, I'm I'm mostly just following the money, and I'm trying to anticipate where do I think I'm going to have the highest hourly rate playing, and anything else is a relatively marginal effect.
1: Okay. So have you found that compared with Venetian and Wynn, that the, uh, you know, fish per capita is uh, higher or lower
0: or about the same? It I, I really mean? varies day to day. I mean, I, I split my time, not, I don't know about evenly, but I mean, I spent a lot of time playing at all three of those venues last summer. I, sure. I didn't conclude, like, this one is definitively better. It really depends what else is going on those times. I think there's certain WSOP events that are kind of can't miss, at least not if you're there. Um Most of those are like the most heavily branded, gimmicky kind of ones. The main event, obviously, but also the Millionaire Maker. Um, Like some of those, those just draw. Like those, those weekend gimmicky ones, um, those draw like really high value fields. When it comes to during the week, it's it's just kind of a matter of like looking at what all is going on and where, and trying to anticipate what are other people gonna choose? And you know, there's an equilibrium, like there's, I mean, part of the reason there's no clear right answer is that like anyone that every professional goes to is not gonna be the best one. So like the equilibrium does involve the professionals spreading themselves out across all those different venues. And we're all kind of trying to make our own guesses about what's gonna be best that day.
1: Right, right. So, uh, have you had a chance to peruse the schedule? We've been talking schedule a little bit uh, here on the podcast, as uh, you know, especially uh, Derek and Mark and I, a, a couple of weeks ago, we've been discussing kind of the, uh, the ones that are already circled on our calendar. Even though it's only February, uh, we're looking ahead to
0: June. Are you doing the same? Um, so today was literally the first time that I'd actually looked at the schedule in anticipation of this conversation. I was kind of vaguely aware of of what had come out. Um I don't I, I rarely plan plan that far in advance. Um if I'm there, then I'll figure out what event like there's not really any event other than the main event that's like I have to be there for that event. It's more like if I if I decide that it makes sense for me to be in Las Vegas during that time, then I'll worry about like what's the best event on a given day or like what days off do I want to take or something. But I don't think there's too many events that are going to um, really compel me to have my ass in Las Vegas the way the main event does.
1: Right, right. Do you think that you will end up playing a full schedule?
0: I really don't. know. Year?
1: Okay. Yeah, it's a little early to
0: decide maybe. Uh, I mean, I will say I was not that excited looking at specifically the WSOP schedule, but I think that gets to the point about um, I just feel like the Venetian and the Wynn are putting on such strong um, showings now that just like browsing the WSOP schedule, I'm like, eh, is this really going to be better than like an 1100 at the Venetian or is this going to be better than an 800 at the Wynn? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of what's on here. I mean, I like that the WSOP has all these 10K non-hold'em events. They're just not what I play. I mean, I I think it's great that that exists. I think it should exist. I think it's what the WSOP should be, but that's not the kind of stuff that I'm looking for. You know, if if you are a uh, high-stakes PLO player, then it's, you know, you don't have as many choices, but I do have choices for the the kind of stuff that I'm looking for, which is the, uh, you know, low four-figure buy-in, no-limit events is the the main thing that I'm eyeballing.
1: What I'm excited to see about this schedule uh is how many events are six-handed eight-handed and shootouts because i'm a guy that likes to have a little space yeah his knees so
0: <laughs> i am glad that they've they've mostly gotten rid of the ten-handed stuff like two and three years ago they were doing a lot of ten-handed things with kind of like shallow starting stacks and they were just brutal like no fun sure. to play
1: yeah no it's it's the nut low to me uh
0: 10-handed is the nut low and should be outlawed. So, it's uh, crazy. Like they used to play 11-handed. I mean Doyle Brunson talks about playing 11-handed in Super System. Can you imagine? Yeah,
1: that's unbelievable. I mean, I guess theoretically, Super System was written so long ago the average size of a human was small. <laughs> 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 I mean, theoretically, you could play Hold'em what 16-handed, right? I mean, you could as long as there's enough cards to deal. <laughs> you could have a huge table. How boring would that be? What would your range be under the gun at an eighteen handed hold'em table?
0: I've I've thought about that. I, I think you limp. You just limp. Yeah. And I mean you still have to have mostly strong hands, but yeah, I don't think you're open raising. Yeah. So there's, there's so few hands that you could warrant open raising with.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It's just limp. That's oh, good. I mean, for our strategy segment today, everybody, we're gonna talk about eighteen handed. <laughs> <laughs> How to play your ranges, eighteen-handed from opposition.
0: You know, I actually do find it useful to think about that kind of stuff. I think I'm a lot more more theoretical person than than many people are, um, and I try to like modulate for that in my videos. But like personally, I find it valuable to like think through the like I find it helps me to think about actual situations that I'm going to encounter to. And to try to answer like hypotheticals like that, like how would you play at an 18 person table? What would be the right way to play if like everyone knew that you had aces before the flop? You know, they're like the questions like, I mean, that one actually can come up, but, um, I, I find stuff like that, you know, interesting to, to think about, even though it's not situations that I'm really ever going to, uh, encounter. Not, I'm yeah. not saying we should have that conversation now just as a, as a matter of personal style. I know what you're
1: trying to do. You're trying to make sure that your podcast is more highly rated than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in in case anyone's still listening, uh, (laughs) why don't we do some strategy? Do you have a hand for me? I do,
0: and it's um. Well, it's 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 one that you've seen before because you actually had a piece of me in this tournament, and what night was it? It was before. Oh, this this is going to be a hand from the Borgata,
1: awesome. Yes. So there was a thirty five hundred dollar. Borgata Winter Open, I think it was called, Mm -hmm. and so yeah, we right a WPT Borgata Winter Open, and we were at the party on whatever that Saturday was.
0: Yeah, so that was before I played the the day one, and and the reason I wanted to emphasize this is, you know, you said something to me at that time which even though i kind of know is true i still find really helpful to to hear when people have pieces of me in a tournament which is you know i'm not gonna question the things that you do or only because you know you're also a a colleague so like i'm i'm looking forward to having a strategy discussion with you where you're welcome to question what i do but you know that you're not going to question what i do in the sense of like you did that with my money like sort of uh, yeah you lost my money right yeah which I think is is so important because you really like even from your perspective as an investor, it's not really in your interest to have me like second guessing while I'm playing or wondering uh, how am I going to explain this to the guys, you know. <laughs> um, you know, like you obviously you wouldn't be investing unless you trust a person's judgment. I think that should generally be the case. So I mean, I, I think that's just, at least for for me as a player, not having that pressure because I mean you have to do stuff that you're not sure is correct like there's no way around that like you get into situations where you're like i'm not sure what the right play is uh my i don't want to just call it instinct because it's more than that but you know i i believe it's going to be this thing that is kind of unconventional and if it doesn't work, I'm going to look like an idiot. And it's entirely possible that when I have an opportunity to look into it more deeply, I'm going to realize that it wasn't a good idea. But still, it's the best I can come up with right now. And you have to be willing to pull the trigger in those kinds of situations. And so you know, what you said to me then was really helpful, even though it wasn't a surprise to me. Like You'd said similar things to me before, but I still find it helpful to hear those things. And I wanted to, I guess, both share that publicly and thank you for it.
1: Well, you're welcome, and I think it's it's good advice to give other people who might be um backers uh right. you know I don't buy pieces of a lot of players, but um you know if you're willing to sell i'm I'm always willing to buy until you make the rake too high, <laughs> which is better. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, as, as we call it in the staking world markup uh, it's similar to rake, but it's, it's a little bit different uh, but yeah, that was just a joke. I think if you're going to uh, if you're going to invest money in somebody, you don't want that person to be looking over his or her shoulder like you know what is my backer going to think of this one uh, look even if you screwed up a hand in a really really bad way, like we all make plays sometimes where we go home that night and say, what was I thinking? Why did I play my hand that way? I made a big mistake today. Even that would be okay with me because the investment is not that you're not going to make any mistakes. The investment is that you are less likely to make big mistakes than somebody that I wouldn't invest in. So, yeah, I, and and as the backer, of course, I want my horse to feel comfortable playing You know his best game. I want Andrew to take the chances that Andrew would normally take, without letting the fact that he's being backed or you know that I have a share of him, uh, you know, change the way he would play. Because then I'm not getting the Andrew that I'm paying for.
0: Yeah, that's very good. That's a very good way of putting it.
1: Yeah. So if you if you do buy pieces of someone, like a lot of us maybe swap a few percentage points or maybe you you know give a, a few bucks to somebody for five ten twenty percent whatever kind of trying to take the pressure off yeah of you and that's exactly it. what it did good good because I, yeah, I don't want you to try to play perfect poker because in my experience trying to play perfectly just leads to big mistakes <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: ironic <laughs> but it's true
1: all right so let's hear one of the hands from that event
0: yeah. So, with with that said, I want to know what my backer thinks about. This, yeah, uh, sure. I, I want to know what my what my fellow professional uh, poker player, who's accomplished in poker tournaments, thinks uh, about this. Um, because I think if I like if this were a, a cash game hand, it would probably not be too controversial the the way that I played it. So there's this kind of like broader tournament question of what. Should, so I mean, here, here's here's the, the situation. This is level one. This is like one of the very first hands of level one. I'm showing up on time for this tournament. Um, so we're we're quite deep. We started at 100, 100, and we start with, um, I believe it was forty thousand chips. Pretty sure that's right. There's an outside chance it was fifty thousand. I believe it was forty thousand. anyway I think we're, those are forty. Yeah, I'm we're pretty sure. We're extremely deep. we're hundred big blinds deep. Yeah. Right? Um, now the pot is a little larger than if we're fifty 100, so it's not quite the same i mean forty k at 100-100 is not exactly the same as forty k at fifty one hundred but we're extremely deep is the bottom line sure um and at this point, there's only like four or five of us at yeah there's four of us there at the table initially um two of them are not people I recognize and you know do not look like people who are crushers at poker mm-hmm. um not they don't necessarily look terrible but just like I, I feel like i'm a better poker player than they are um and then there's a guy who i do recognize who's someone um i've played with a decent amount he's like a high stakes player in the maryland area he used to play in the big game at maryland live the big game is at national harbor now so i don't run into him as often but you know he's like a winning player 1025 player and that game at National Harbor, like one of the reasons I don't run into him too often is that game can be pretty tough. In fact, I think it's twenty five fifty now. Um so I mean he he wins in like a tough big game. Like he's a he's a very good poker player. Okay. And so you know, right away it's kind of like that's not like of there's there's I have three opponents at this table right now. Two of them I'm much better than, and one of mm-hmm. whom I mean, my ego wants me to say it's a toss-up. He very well may be better than I am. Right. Um, like I, you, I'm not going to make my my objective is not getting big confrontations with this guy. Right, like and that's the, reason, the opposite of what you want to do. Right, of course,
1: and I think that's a good approach. And I think that even before you get your cards, you kind of want to look around the table, especially you got there early, as I know is your way. You like you're a morning person, so you like to get there early. Um, Especially in a tournament like this where you expect there might be some skill advantage um, that you'll have against the field, so of course you want to play deep against those players. It looks like you have kind of a bad seat at a great table um, from the description. Does that sound right?
0: Well, and there's only four players here so far. I mean, I'm not even, this guy's not even really on my left. He's only on my left because we're four-handed right now. <laughs> like oh, there's, okay. There's so going to be not... three seats between us eventually. Or there oh, are okay. three empty seats between us.
1: Okay, good. So for now, it's going to be his big blind when you're in the small blind, but later that won't be the case. Right. He's going to be basically like sitting across from you almost. Right. All right. So, um, all right. So, yeah, I like, I like the way you're thinking uh, heading into the hand. You don't want to play a. a get into a large confrontation against this guy who may or may not have uh, a skill edge over you but certainly not the guy you want to necessarily tangle with
0: among your three opponents and especially not when i'm out of position to. right him, which right now i often will be but like once the table fills up it's you're know, not going to be quite so common that i'm out of position to him
1: yeah that part will get easier
0: So, like, believe it or not, because this, obviously, this hand is about to involve me getting into a big competition. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, I really was trying not to. Like, I explicitly said this in my head. But, like, it folds to me in the small blind, which is the same size as the big blind right now. They're both 100-100. I have king eight of spades. What am I supposed to do, open fold? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just fold for nothing? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, your options are check or raise. Yeah, I,
1: th- I think you can make a case for raising.
0: Against um, most people I would raise. Um, I just I didn't want to be getting big conversations with this guy. I checked.
1: Yeah, I, I have no problem with the check there. You've got the king of spades and the eight of spades. Uh, you, you're at a four-handed table. So, uh, yeah, obviously there would be uh, times at a four-handed table when you want to make a raise with this hand, blind versus blind. But I like giving the philosophy of trying to keep the pot small – And not let him just, you know, build the pot uh, and play a bigger pot when he has position. I like it. So yeah, I think I would usually check here too.
0: So I felt pretty good about that part. He raises to three hundred. I still think calling is pretty trivial. I mean, you could make a case for three betting. I honestly, I don't think you can really make a case for folding unless it's just like you're really going extreme on the don't get confrontations with this guy. Um, I mean, I think this hand is much too good to fold. I don't think it would be a terrible three-betting candidate, but in the interest of not playing a big pot with this guy, I called.
1: Yeah, no, I think calling is, is right. I, I agree with you that, you know, uh, check, and then he raises. As you know, he's going to do with the wide range. Putting in, like, 1,200 would probably take it down a lot, but who knows? Maybe this guy perceives you as someone that's a little too, uh, you know, whatever, out of line and wants to call and see flop, you know, figure out, I, I'm so deep, I'm in position. I'm That's the to thing. Like pot. no matter how yeah. he
0: perceives me, it's just like being in position when you're this deep is a huge advantage. Yeah. And, you know, King eight suited is a good hand that can play reasonably well out of position, but it's not really enough to overcome. You know, if like, if, if I think he's even a decent player, let alone a good one, um, you know, it's just like that that positional advantage is massive when you're four hundred blinds deep. And I think a lot of tournament players don't fully appreciate this because they so rarely play anywhere near this deep. And like when you're forty big blinds deep, being out of position is not great, but it's not that big of a deal. When you're four hundred big blinds deep, like it's a really big problem to be out of position. So like jacking up the pot. Even like honestly, just like limp calling with aces here is not that bad. Yeah,
1: agreed, because the most likely outcome of starting with aces is
0: you're going to end up with one pair. Right. So, yeah. How big a pot do you want to play? E- even in a three bet pot, like you're not nearly deep. I mean, if I three bet to twelve hundred, if I three bet to fifteen hundred, like five times his raise and he calls, right. there's three thousand in the pot and thirty eight thousand five hundred in our stacks. Like the stack to pot ratio is still thirteen. 13. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just not you. You can't stack off with over pairs, Yeah. Which so is why f- King eight Suit is a reasonable candidate because it makes flushes. Like that. Sure. That's why I say it's a reasonable. Like it can make a good flush. That's what makes it a reasonable three betting candidate. But yeah. um, I, I think it's better as a call. Yeah, so for all those reasons, I agree with the call. So what's on the flop? Uh, the flop is, again, like, what am I going to do? It's jack-9-7 with two spades. Oh, yes. and I have the king-8 of spades. Like, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm supposed to open fold? Like?
1: Right, so here we are. Uh, obviously a flop that we're going to need to uh, continue on. Um, we have the king-8 of spades on jack-9-7 with two spades. So we have a flush draw, we have an overcard, we have a gut shot we got a lot going on. Uh, you're first.
0: I see no reason to bet. I want to make... So, I, I did bet. And the the case that I would make for betting is I don't expect him to have that wide of a C betting range here. Um, so, let me this. If you were to check, what would your plan be? Are you, are you checking, intending to call, or intending to raise? I think I would base that on my read base it on his bet
1: size um, yeah just kind of base it on the moment when he makes that bet um, if I feel like he's really strong then I would just call
0: and if I he's like a he's very just, good player though so I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to think like I don't think I'm going to get that read Like, I don't think I'm going to check and his bet size is going to tell me whether or not he's really strong or like his demeanor or anything like I, okay. I I think I'm not going to I'm not going to know what he has as a result of his bet.
1: Right. So we justifiably have little reason to feel confident in our ability to get anything off of him given that
0: he's a high stakes pro that we you
1: know we have some familiarity with. Okay. So Yeah, so I mean
0: I think you're like there's a lot of players where like they will whether or not they bet and like how much they bet will tell you something about how they feel about their hand. I don't think that's really going to be the case with this guy. Yeah
1: um this the problem for me is uh what am i repping uh if i lead you know you're betting 400 into 600 here uh
0: what are you what are you trying to tell him there's a lot of so but because i don't think he's going to have a real high c betting frequency here i would want to bet with a lot of um like, most of my strong hands are also vulnerable hands right now. If I flopped a set, if I flopped a straight, if I flopped two pair, most of which are in my range. Like, pocket jacks, I'm probably not playing this way. Sevens, I'm playing this way. Maybe even nines, I'm, I'm playing this way. Like, limp calling for this kind of the same reason I did king 8 Like I just don't think I'm doing a lot of raising pre-flop in this situation. So I think I have, um, well, I think two things. One, I think that my limp-calling range is overall stronger than his raising range. Like, I think if we just looked at the equity of his range for raising preflop versus my equity when I limp-call preflop, I think I have more equity than he does. Okay. Um, I think, like, precisely because I feel like I need, like, he has a big positional advantage, so I need to be overcoming that by only playing relatively good hands in this spot. Whereas he can raise a lot of hands because he has that positional advantage. Right. Um, the advantage that he is going to have is that on some boards, he's going to be more nutty than I am. Like, because he has hands like aces in his range that I probably don't have, or at least he's not going to perceive me as having, then there's going to be some boards where he has the advantage of being able to bet a polarized range. This is not really one of those boards. Like This is a board where, if anything, it might be more squarely in, in my wheelhouse than his. So I think this is a board where I should be driving a lot of the action, which means he should not have a real high C betting frequency here. If he has um, certainly you know, like a 9-8 kind of hand, I don't think... Uh, actually, that would be a reasonable betting candidate. If he has ace-king, I don't think this is a very good time for him to bet. Um, if he has 5-4, I don't think it's a very good time for him to bet if he has pocket aces, I don't think it's that great of a time for him to bet. Like, if you bet here with aces, no spade, and get check-raised, how are you feeling? Right,
1: yeah, I'm not loving it, but I'm probably calling the check raise because I'm in position, and I have to see what, what happens on the turn. I'm not going to be ready to, to
0: bet fold aces in his shoes, but yeah, I don't like getting raised. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure if I'm him and I have red aces, I'm checking behind the flop. Yeah, and I think that would
1: probably be uh a very good idea. So, all right, so we have All right, but what do I guess I just want to ask again, what do you feel like you're repping when you bet 400
0: into 600? Um so I, I think I I will play um and and can have a lot of those very strong hands that I mentioned, sets to pair, straights. Sure. Um I also would do this with some hands that are Marginal, you know, like uh, um, King-Jack, maybe, probably not 9-8, maybe like Ace-9. Some hands that are are pretty good, but that don't really want to let my opponent take a free card, and... Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the, the bottom line. Like, if I only bet here with a very polarized range, meaning, like, those very strong hands that aren't going to mind getting raised, and then some bluffs that are going to have trivial folds if they get raised, my opponent doesn't have a lot of incentive to raise me because then I just, like, only fold my bluffs and, um, yeah, I, I, I continue with the strong hands and, and fold the bluffs, and, and he doesn't benefit that much from raising because he can probably beat the bluffs in a variety of ways he doesn't necessarily have to raise so giving him some incentive to raise requires or i guess what i should say is he's not that likely to raise a bet i think which is why i want to bet some hands that are um that play pretty well if they are happy to get folds when they bet that don't mind getting called when they bet and uh, are going to play pretty poorly if raised which are some of those hands i just mentioned ace nine king jack interesting
1: yeah, I like it. Um I interviewed uh Jason Smith is a is a regular guest on this podcast. He's also a TPE coach and I told him that I, I do this a lot. Uh donk lead. I do it with my flush draws, I do it with my combo draws and then I also have to do it with my sets and my two pairs. Uh, so yeah, I feel like our ranges are kind of similar. Let me ask you this Andrew, would you Oh, and by the way, the second part of that is Jason pretty much always checks to the Razor, he said.
0: Um, I I actually pretty much always do, too. I think this this exact situation is pretty specific. Um, I I do think like a default, especially for people listening who don't feel... That, like I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in my ability to recognize the exceptions. Um, I think most people who try to recognize the exceptions would be better off just not making exceptions. Period. Right. Um, so I, I, don't think that's a very bad strategy. I think in general, just like always checking to the pre-flop raiser is, is a pretty fine thing to do, especially when you're peeling the big blind and there's antes in the pot. Like this is a pretty different situation from like middle position raises and I peel from the big blind because you know he made a small raise and there's antes.
1: Right. So that yeah. So obviously this is a, a different situation. um Yeah, ranges are much wider when it's blind versus blind, and also a
0: four-handed table. I think ranges are wider anyway. And the point I was emphasizing of my range is pretty strong for seeing the flop, which is not the case when I'm peeling from the big blind with antes. Right. Got it.
1: Okay. Right. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. I got you now. All right. So. Would you have made this bet with a hand like 8-7? Like a bottom pair gut shot kind of I, I
0: think that hand probably plays better as a check call. Okay. Um, where it's not, it's not benefiting as much from fold equity because it does have some nutty outs. Like if you, you know, like the hands that I mentioned that I wanted, wanted to bet are hands that don't really have nutty outs. So like King Jack, Ace Nine, those hands don't benefit that much from seeing more cards in the same way, or I guess they they suffer more from from seeing more cards than Eight Seven does. Like Eight Seven almost always has outs no matter how the board develops.
1: Okay, and before we move on. Uh, what is
0: your range for check raising? This is a reasonable check raising. So like all those hands that I mentioned are probably mixes. Like they're it's probably not that I'm just always betting those. Sure. Um, so when I'm check raising here, it's going to be a combination of like nutty made hands and nutty draws. And this definitely goes in the nutty draw category. Um, so I I do think this is a hand that could viably be, be played as a check raise. Again, believe it or not, I my thinking was that betting is actually the more small pot option. Like if I'm choosing between check raising and check calling, or sorry, check, check raising and betting, I don't think check calling is that bad, but I think because this hand doesn't have a lot of showdown value, but has a lot of equity, it really benefits from regression a lot. Um, So I, I, I I'm kind of looking at betting and check raising as my primary options, and I think betting is actually the one that's more likely to keep the pot small.
1: Would you mind elaborating, just for our listeners, uh, so, actually, and for me too, why having a hand that has uh, minimal showdown value but a lot of equity is a good hand for playing
0: that way? So the the a lot of equity part is why I'm okay putting a lot of money into the pot with it, which is what uh, check raising entails. You know, like I am I'm I'm building up a large pot. I mean, I. I the check raise are going to be called a fair bit of the time and I'm going to be putting a fair number of chips in the pot and I'm going to want to bet some turns that don't improve my hand and that's going to involve putting more chips into the pot. I don't want to have equity when I'm doing that. I don't want to be just like check raising with pocket twos here, just kind of shoveling money in the pot with a with an arrow. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like some that have a lot of equity are a lot better as either they're not going to be bluffs because they're like you know, straight or something, or they're gonna play better as calls. So if I had like nine eight, um, that's another one. Like, PioSolver probably plays a mix of like check calls and check raises with nine eight, but um, honestly, it probably plays a mix with king eight spades also. But I, I think nine eight is more appealing as a as a calling hand because of its showdown value. So like, when I check call with nine eight, I don't have to get there to win. I might just have the best hand already. Whereas with king eight of spades, it's a lot less likely that I win unimproved. And um, so it, it also benefits from fold equity more than I am like nine eight does.
1: Right. I see. Because nine eights already, you know, quote unquote made, as we say. All right. So uh, as is normally the case when I speak with you, Andrew, <laughs> I go from I don't see any reason to bet <laughs> <laughs> to, to now feeling like, yeah, betting's perfectly viable option here, and I kind of like it. <laughs> that makes me feel good. Yeah, yeah, it should. All right, so you make it 400, and what happens? Uh,
0: he raises to 1,400.
1: Oh, of course he does. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. But obviously we have so much equity in the pot. Uh, we We want to continue. I guess the question is simply, do we call or do we raise it back? And I think in this spot uh my inclination is to raise again
0: um i just i was i was was so sure you were about to say call i was like oh it's gonna be another fight
1: (laughs) Ah, is that great okay so i guess uh spoiler alert sounds like andrew's about to raise again too uh you could tell us why uh you want to raise again but for me it's just i have a lot more equity here on the flop than i'm likely to have on the turn and i think that i can take this pot down a lot putting a lot of pressure on him when he has something like pocket queens or even, you know, even pocket aces, like how like you said earlier, how far does he want to go this early in this tournament with just one pair when you're showing a lot of strength here? Um, you know, unless he can always correctly put you on some kind of flush draw, he's not going to be too happy if you make it something like 4000.
0: So... Which, by the way, is absolutely what I would do if I had 10-8 or pocket 9s like you know i would definitely be three betting those hands like that's part of why i want to have a bluffing range is you know i if i have a very strong hand here remember we're, we're still, we still have forty thousand 000 chips behind like if i have the nuts i need to put the money in this pot. i can't just be you know check calling the nuts on the flop or bet calling the nuts you know i need to be building this and also like 10-8 is not going to be the nuts probably by the time i get to the river so i need to get the money in early with those hands and um so like i'm, I'm definitely going to fast play my strong hands and i've you know, I want to balance that with some bluffs. This is a good enough player that like, I do think he's he's going to be incentivized to have some folds when I 3 that here, and I want to take advantage of that when I have this hand that benefits. I mean, it's the same argument as for check-raising, really. It's just like these hands that have a lot of equity but no showdown value um, benefit from aggression. And like the no showdown value thing becomes even more true in a raised pot than it does. Like, you know, at a check call pot, occasionally king high is actually good, or, like, just hitting an eight or a king will make you the best hand. And when the action goes bet-raised, that becomes less true. Like, you're less likely to win the pot by hitting a king or an eight when he has a hand that can raise the flop. But the the nutty outs, like the out to a 10 or to a spade, are so resilient that even in a three-bet pot, you're still going to have a very strong hand if you hit. Um, I would be a little less inclined or I mean I would I would probably not three bet like 5 6 of spades because that hand, if I hit it I only have a small flush um and I know like probably a lot of people are listening to this and thinking like it's a flush blind versus blind idiot like what do you but you know, when when you're this deep it matters like in we're talking about like three bets going in in the pot like I don't really want to stack off with 5 6 of spades here um, when I, because I turn a flush. Certainly if I hit an 8 when I have 5-6, um, and I, so I make like the low end of a straight when jack nine eight seven is on the board, that's another hand Like I'm not really looking to stack off with that. So I don't think 5-6 like, of spades, even though it looks like a combo draw when you look at this board, I don't think that's a good hand to 3-bet the flop with, because your outs are not nutty when the pocket's that large. But I do think King-8 of spades, you know, making a straight is nutty, and making a King-high flush is nutty.
1: Right. I mean, obviously, if you make a straight, um, King-Queen got there, but it's just so hard for him to have, uh, given the way he's playing his hand. Like, I don't see him raising King-Queen, and we even have the best King to have already. So, yeah, I I don't know. I like that we block 10-8, um, so we don't have to worry as much about him having it. I like having the flush draw to fall back on. Uh, I like, I like building the pot here, even though <laughs> we said before you described the hand that the, the strategy, the preconceived notion of the way to approach this table was, I don't want to play a big pot with this player. But you know, that's just poker. Like the way things are shaking out here, I think just calling is actually pretty bad because now you really have to hit to win and it's just, I don't want this guy to be in the driver's seat when this is the best street for me. Right. You know, draws do
0: well on the flop, they don't do as well on the turn. Yeah, I, I think that this is a thing that a lot of people kind of misunderstand. It's like they, they think they can play pot control when they're out of position. And, like, it, the size of the pot is not up to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, you're out of like, position.
0: Your, your opponent can put as much, like, this is no-limit hold'em. At any time, he can put as much money into the pot as he wants. So the idea, like, oh, I'm going to keep the pot small by just checking and calling. Like, that's not, he's allowed to overbet the turn, and this is a player who's good enough to do that. Um, you know, if I just call the flop, like, he's allowed to bet again on the next And, like, I can't really not see the river with his hand. I mean, there's, there's very few turns where I'm going to be able to, to fold this hand so it's really just a question of do you want to have fold equity or not and not every hand needs to have fold equity but this one really benefits from it a lot so I was like if we're going to see the river one way or the other I'd rather be going that far or not necessarily see the river but like if I'm going to stay in until the river I'm not folding before the river then um, I would rather be the one doing the betting than the one just like calling and hoping to get there
1: yeah and also given as you said that you're not always going to be um raising with all of your flush draws three betting with all of your flush draws uh that means that your range uh for raising doesn't include that many flush draws so it's kind of nice to be able to represent
0: 10-8 here yeah even like the nut flush draw i mean there's a case for just check calling that on the flop that has more showdown value than king high does you know, like, when you have that, you're beating a hand, like, King-Queen, and he might be, which, you know, king eight is not beating. So, you know, I, I think even, like, Ace-X of spades has a little bit of showdown value that king eight of spades does not. Agreed. I tend
1: to play my nut flush draws a little bit more passively for that exact reason. Mm-hmm um
0: as a general note obviously there are exceptions <laughs> yeah and <laughs> just, i might end up playing it aggressively yeah, same thing with nine eight like if i check call the flop and he bets again i might turn the hand into a bluff at that point and check raise but you know so like what it means to have showdown value it changes over time like some hands have showdown value on the flop but if your opponent keeps betting then they the, their showdown value kind of shrivels and then turning it into a bluff becomes viable on a later street even though it wasn't the plan on the flop this sure. hand just doesn't have showdown value even on the flop so i'm taking an aggressive line with it right away excellent excellent i like it so um when you make well what did you raise to i made it uh 4500 so i bet 400 he made it 14 i made it 45
1: okay yeah i think i said four thousand. i have no issue with 45 obviously uh what is the plan like if he keeps raising are we going to keep raising and just get this whole m of 200 you know, in is that
0: yeah um, okay. if, if he makes it like eleven or twelve K on the flop, I'm pretty happy to shove. We that's, got to. That's almost yeah. a better outcome than having him call, actually, because the the problem when he calls is that. Spoiler alert. Um, the turn is often a blank, and these hands are like combo draws are tough to play on blank turns. If you can get them, like there's no way. I can be in really bad shape. I mean, I guess the absolute worst-case scenario would be if he had, like— I don't even remember what the non-spade card was on the flop. If he had, like, eight 9 of spades, my equity is pretty poor. Um, but there's very few hands that really have this hand in bad shape right now. Like, even against the set, I'm not that not that bad off. Like, you can't go that wrong putting the money in on the flop. Um, there's a lot of room to get in trouble on the turn. Like, if I bet the turn and he shoves, that's a— I mean you have to fold but it's a nasty nasty spot <laughs> like you fold a lot of equity when that happens Um, but like you also can't really like I don't think check raising all in on a blank turn is that appealing I don't think check calling a blank turn is that appealing just you know blank turns are really hard to play if he if he feels this three bet I, I would be I think happier to have him four bet and I can just shove and like I mean it's a re-entry like I can, I can rebuy again like the money's not going in bad if I get it on the flop
1: right yeah, I agree with you. Especially, I wasn't. I, I forgot it was a reentry situation. So yeah, why don't we just uh, go with it here? If he does that, uh, I take it he did not do that. Nope, he called, and the turn was uh, three diamonds. Oh, that's not the card we wanted to see at all. That sucks. Give me a different one. <laughs> <laughs> can I will can not do that. God, believe. Oh, it or not. okay. Just in the yeah. baccarat pit. Um, all right, so. Yeah, that card changes nothing except that now we have half the equity we had on the flop, basically. Um, Okay, so what to do? Having taken the lead in the hand, basically, on the flop, I think we need to keep betting here.
0: Yeah. I mean, Um, we can't... I don't think we can really check fold to a bet. So again, like, a bet is going in the pot, and it's just a question of do we want to be the aggressor or not when it happens. The only downside to being the aggressor is if he shoves, that really sucks, but um, I don't think there's that many hands he can shove here, especially because we are blocking ten eight. Um, there's like even even if he has like bottom set, I don't think that's that appealing of a shove for him to jam like pocket sevens here. Um, right. So I, I don't think it happens very often that he raises. That that that's the only real disaster that can result from from us betting. I think I'm gonna
1: politely disagree about bottom set. I think if we check. Having put in forty five hundred on the flop and now checking the turn, which is something nobody does when they have the nuts.
0: Oh, sorry, I, I meant if we bet, if we bet seven k.
1: Oh. I don't oh, think okay. it would be
0: good for him to jam forty with pocket sevens. Good. Then I don't have to politely disagree. I,
1: yeah, no, you are representing stronger than bottom set, and I think bottom set is just a call.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: It's, it's a good bluff catcher it has good equity um it might even be ahead of a little bit of my value range but if i call a shove it's not going to be in good shape i'm mostly going to have a higher set or 10-8 yeah
1: so when right so when he called your
0: three bet on the flop what did you how did you range him at that point that's a good question um i think he can definitely have some slow played strong hands um some of them might be as you know it could be as strong as 10-8 he's not like, I don't think that's a mandatory four bet on the flop for him. Um, I think he might have a hand like pocket sevens that's very strong, but not quite strong enough that he wants to get all the money in with it. I think that's pretty viable. Jack nine goes in that same category of like very good, but not really trying to put 40k in. Right. Um, and I do, you know, I think draws are in his range, but I block a fair number of them. Um, you know, Queen Ten is. You know, I don't block any of Queen Ten. I do block a lot of spade draws. I block like eight six um, Ace Eight. I don't know that he would play Nine Eight this way. Um, he, I think he might even pull Nine Eight to the to the three bet on the turn. Um, maybe not if he had a backdoor flush draw or something. Uh, I mean, I think he needs a relatively good hand. I'm not even sure. Like you said, overpairs may or may not be playing this way. I think pocket aces no spade would be a pretty reasonable fold to the flop three bet um, with a spade. He should certainly be calling. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's like relatively strong, and I do think I block a fair number of his uh, a fair number of his draws. Yeah. Yeah. I the, agree. The, the turn um did, did put a backdoor flush draw up by the way. So it was the three of diamonds and there was a diamond on the flop. So there are now two flush draws on the board. And that, that's relevant because I do think he has some hand like I, I don't think he's calling with a bare backdoor flush draw on the flop, but I do think a backdoor flush draw would make some hands that might otherwise be pretty borderline would turn them into hands that he is calling with on the flop, like a nine eight of diamonds or something. Yeah, we'll call the three bet <laughs> because he could pick up so much equity on the turn. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. All right. So yeah. Uh we check. Oh and King Queen also. I I block a little bit of King Queen, but that's definitely in his range. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I um, I think he has to
0: call it King Queen. Yeah. Alright. So, like, look how much money he's gonna make if he hits a ten. You know? <laughs> like, right I'm i ready to put sacks in if a ten comes and that's gonna be good for him.
1: <laughs> right. Okay, so we need to bet again. Um for all those reasons. And that you're not that concerned about getting raised. So how much is the
0: pot now? Nine thousand ninety six hundred. Yeah, ninety six. Alright. So I guess I would put in about six K? Yeah, I bet seven more in there. we're in the right neighborhood. Okay. I'm just kind of thinking about potentially setting up a river shove, which even if I don't want to do it with this hand, I am going to want to do when I have like pocket jacks or 10-8 or something, which is what I'm trying to represent right now. So, uh, you know, as it's, it's if I bet seven, we're going to end up with 23 in the pot and like 29 in the stacks, 28 in the stacks. Whereas if you bet six, now you've got like 21 in the pot and 31 in the stacks, just a slightly harder amount to, you know, yeah it's more of an overbet to shove the river but i think we're we're in the same neighborhood yeah
1: actually that kind of talks me into the seven i like
0: the seven now
1: all right so you bet seven and
0: assuming he didn't raise he did not raise okay um and then the river was the queen of diamonds so the backdoor flush gets there Hmm. um Other than, you know, my my hand does not get there. I still just have king King high, High. which I do not think has any showdown value at this point. (laughs) I'd
1: be shocked if it has any. Uh,
0: And as we said, you know, there's uh, 20, let's say 23k in the pot, something like that, and 28 in the stacks. Right, so we've taken the lead on the flop, continued on the turn,
1: bricked off on the river, and it's more than just a brick. I think it's important
0: uh, to point out that this yeah. is not just a break. This is just a bad card. Yeah, the, those backdoor flush draws are in... Well, they're in both of our ranges, but I think they're probably a little more in his range.
1: I think they're more in his range, too. And I also think uh, other other hands that he may have been playing strongly have queens in them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just... I don't want to bet again. Uh, I hate to put in so much and then just leave it for him to take. But... I also hate trying a hopeless bluff that's
0: almost definitely going to get called. Yeah. And the the blockers here do not work in our favor. No, no. Um, like, uh, we don't want to block spades right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, a much better shoving hand, if I had, like, 9-8, especially if one of them was a diamond somehow, um, that would be a way more appealing shoving hand, where I'm, like, I'm blocking middle set, I'm unblocking spades, I'm blocking 10 and I'm blocking flushes. That's the kind of hand I want to be bluffing with. Um, and I don't think that pair of nines is given me much showdown value at this point when yeah. when the pot has gotten this large. I do think that, um, yeah, the 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 blockers here are just all wrong.
1: Yeah, the blockers are on the wrong side of the coin, and it's just a card that gives him equity he may not have had before that might just make him want to call. You know, like you mentioned King-Queen. I don't know if this guy's good enough to
0: call a shove with King-Queen. He's probably not. I mean, he's not afraid to like I mean the right. money it's not going to be like, oh, I don't want to bust on level one of the tournament like he's right. not in that mindset so I mean he'll he's gonna think about it and if he decides it's a profitable call, he's gonna make it.
1: He's just gonna make it because he's a robot wizard, genius, world beater and uh, that for all those reasons, I think betting again is bad and as much as I hate give up spots, I think we have one here. Did you give up?
0: I did. okay. You checked and lost to... He was very happy to check behind, and he had Jack-9, which I do not think was the hand that was going to fold to a river shove. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think he played uh, impeccably.
1: Yeah, he played... Like, it I, I play. mean, I think we
0: both played it fine. Like I don't I don't really have regrets about how I played it. I think it's... I mean, it's, it's the cooler, basically. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, it is. Um, what
0: is your plan if you hit a king on the river? That's a good question. I mean, I don't, it's not good enough to value bet. Like, he's just... He has too many hands that look like this and not that many hands that like, can hero to a river bet. I mean, I think it has to start with a check. Um, I'm not even sure it's a good call. Like, what does he... I guess all the... You no, know, Queen-10 gets there. Yeah, I think it's a check fold. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm not even expecting to win that much. I mean, occasionally it goes check-check, and he has, like ace jack or pocket queens Um, I mean that's a lot to hope for like I I expect to lose a pot like 90% of the time if I river a king it's not at this point that is not going to produce showdown value if I had check called the flop and you know check called the turn and the river is a king then maybe I'm good like 30% of the time but with with how large this pot has gotten yeah a pair of kings is not winning it yeah but I also don't think it's that great of a blocker like you're not blocking queen 10 which is pretty important
1: yeah that's very important all right, well, that's an unfortunate start to your tournament. Um, <laughs> to say the least, what if we lose half our stack? Oh, man. That's... You know,
0: the, the, the crazy part is within the orbit, I was um, up to 60K. So you know, I'm at 20K, 28K. So within the orbit, I'm up to 60K and down to 40K. Not even within the within the half hour.
1: Right, right. That's just the nature of
0: shorthanded tournament no let me hold them with aggressive opponents yeah yeah Um, i mean it was a little like it's not really what you're trying to do in level one of a tournament but um it was just how things you know i just i had hands that i felt like needed to you know large pots needed to be played with them and to some degree it was cooler i mean the the big pot that i won was i flopped a set someone turned to straight and then i rivered a full house so it was you know there was also a cooler element there um there's, to some degree it was and this hand also is like one person has a combo draw someone else has top two a lot of money is going to go in the pot in those kind of situations and it, it doesn't mean that anyone made a mistake
1: no no actually like i think i like your plays on all streets in this one so uh, your backer approves <laughs> <laughs> for what it's worth but uh yeah i, I want to hear the rest of the story but i'm kind of out of time can you um, tell us how the rest
0: of this tournament went for you, because I'm sure people are curious. They, they may be curious; they'll probably be grateful that we're out of time, because the rest of this talk would mostly just be me whining. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> there a lot of bad I've, beat stories in there. There were just a lot of this kind of situations where um, I needed to put a lot of money in the pot, and either I just I had second best hands from the get go, or you know, people had kind of like you know, there was one where I like four bet with queens and then or no four bet with ace queen and uh someone called like a pretty large four bet with pocket twos Like didn't you know they called off like 25 percent of their stack or something with pocket twos and then the flop is like queen x deuce so it's, it's kind of like i didn't feel good about it when he shoved the flop but i was also like Well, I mean, he really shouldn't have chairs in (laughs) his range. But he did. I mean, it's sort of like the reward is there. I mean, it's equivalent to people like playing jackpots. You know, a casino doesn't get angry at someone when they hit a jackpot, right? The the casino owner doesn't come out and yell at you like, You idiot, what are you doing putting quarters in this jackpot, in this slot machine? (laughs) Don't you know that it's a losing proposition for you, right? Like, and the casinos make money even though they pay off jackpots. So I think sometimes people get this mindset of, like, they hate paying off when people get lucky. You know, they're like, well, what if my opponent flopped two pair against me? He's probably going to win a big pot. If he, like, if he made a bad call pre-flop for a lot of money and flopped two pair, like, he's probably going to win a big pot. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong or, like, you're more like likely to make a mistake, a mistake I think, trying to find the fold, like, the hero fold in those kind of situations sure. than just accepting, like, yeah, if they, like, bad play does get rewarded you know it's not um people have the sense of justice of like oh the bad play got rewarded like yeah you're supposed to reward bad play that's why they give jack like you want people making bad plays like it's just because they get rewarded doesn't make it doesn't like retroactively make their call good and there's consequences to you of trying not to pay off those hands which is you end up folding the best hand or folding a hand that has a lot of equity or something but anyway i'm getting off on a rant bottom line is um i got pretty unlucky in a lot of spots and never really got above 40k again made day two and lost stasis the kings
1: oh wow so you even managed to survive all that uh bad variance being on the wrong side of variance and then still Made That's it the to brutal day thing about somehow. these deep stack tournaments. Like you can oh. run bad
0: for a really long time.
1: <laughs> and then you still make day two and don't crash. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Sometimes it's brutal. Sometimes it's torture. Uh, but we do love it. And uh, we love you, Andrew. We appreciate you coming on again. And uh, I'd love to hear some more about uh, this tournament and any other tournaments you're playing, if you'd be willing to Come back on my uh, Thinking Poker podcast that I'm the host of here. Apparently, it's always a pleasure talking <laughs> to you, Clayton. It's my pleasure, Andrew. What else are you? Um, what else are you doing for TPE these days? Do you have any videos coming out?
0: Uh, I finished recording yesterday, um, but I did actually. We were talking about the the W Coop. Uh, one of the Part of the value to me of, of playing the W WCOOP is I get some TPE fodder, because it is hard. I mean, I do some live hand history reviews, but it's a lot of work to, <laughs> to put those together. And it still kind of comes off in a format that's slightly difficult for people to read. Um, so I like, think it's hard to do a hand history review from a live tournament. Um, so the online gives me an opportunity to do that. I actually played, not as part of the, the WCOOP, but partly because I thought it would be interesting to TPE people, I played a $5 rebuy one um, when, when poker starts, which is smaller than what I usually play but i think people have the perception when they watch a video and see me do something that's not what they would do it's easy for people to dismiss it and say like oh he's playing a $3,500 tournament that would never work in the tournament that i'm playing so i think it's good for people to see how am i playing when i'm playing the kind of stakes that i think a lot of tpe members are are playing i think what people are going to find is it's not as different from how i'm playing in a 3,500 as they might Think like essentially, I want I don't want people to have the excuse of saying, "Oh, that's different stakes than I play, so what I'm doing is probably fine." Like I want people to be challenged, and I think seeing me do some things in a five dollar rebuy that they're not doing, and I mean, I also probably make some mistakes in it, and I try to acknowledge those as well. Of like, oh, maybe this wasn't the best thing to try to do against a five dollar rebuy player. Um, but I I think like having some stuff that's at the stakes, like I know a lot of my content is higher stakes and having some stuff that's at the stakes of what probably the majority of TP members are playing, um, is, is valuable. So hopefully people are going to get some value out of seeing the the replay from a $5 rebuy.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, And comedy, we say, know your audience. So it seems like you're
0: doing that too, as a video maker. Yeah, and so, I didn't go like super deep in it, but I think I played like 400 some hands. I mean, I was I was somewhat deep in it. It's not like a final table type thing, but I thought it would be good for people just to see. It. Yeah, It's not like a super remarkable tournament, but I don't do a lot of smaller stakes content, and I thought it would be good to have out there.
1: Yeah, well, good. I'm, I'm definitely going to watch it. I'm sure most of the uh, listeners will. By the way, guys, I know some of you listen to the podcast, but you haven't yet joined Tournament Poker Edge. I mean, I can't tell you how big a mistake that is. I mean, for a very small amount of money— you can have it's, access. it's practically free. I mean, it's, it's really, really like, cheap.
0: Even if you play small stakes tournaments, like twenty-five dollars, like that's just not that many buy-ins.
1: No, it's not, and it would really greatly improve your uh, your overall poker knowledge, which would therefore improve your likelihood of becoming a winning player or increasing your uh, EV if you will, if you already are a winning player.
0: And you it's get... not a commitment. I mean, you you, you play, if you, if you hate it, you're not going to hate it, but if you hate it, you can always unsubscribe. It's not like you're, no, one, no one's, you're not making a year long commitment here.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you can, and go...
0: you'll get a discount if you do, but you don't have to.
1: You can go month to month, whatever you want. You have access to all Andrew's videos and all of our other uh, amazing coaches, um, Alex Fitzgerald, Daryl Jace, and on and on and on. So much great content. Uh,
0: uh, is one i've been enjoying a lot recently
1: oh yeah he's terrific as well so definitely get on there if you're not on there yet so for andrew brokus uh for bert who has finally stopped meowing (laughs) i was like who the hell's bert (laughs) yeah you forgot bert from half an hour ago he's the cat and for everyone here at tournament poker edge i'm clayton fletcher thanks so much for listening
2: Let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me Lock and intuition, play the cards with babes to start And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart The hot we will be. While little gambling is fun when you're with me, I love it. Russian roulette is not the same without a gun. And baby, when it's loving, it's not rough It not fun, fun? Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh. whoa, whoa. I'll get a heart, show.